Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Eileen Hallett-Stone is out with a second collection from her popular Salt Lake Tribune Living History column in Historic Tales of Utah from the History Press. Stone tells many of the stories of Utah, including those of Big Bill Haywood, vilified by the New York Times as the most feared figure in America, women bruised on the front lines of suffrage battles, Chinese paper sons and daughters, heroic northern Ute firefighters, downtown Salt Lake City's Wall Street of the West, the off-road cyclist known as the Bedouin of the Desert, and Utah's love affair with sweets. Award-winning author Eileen Hallett-Stone's projects include Hidden History of Utah, a homeland of the West Utah Jews Remember, Missing Stories, an oral history of ethnic and minority groups in Utah, that one co-authored with Leslie Kellen. Her commentary is featured in the 2015 documentary film Carvalho's Journey, and uh, she, of course, writes a living history column for the Salt Lake uh, Tribune. Eileen Hallett-Stone, welcome uh, back to uh, Access Utah. Thank you so much for having me. This is a pleasure. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's a great read, Historic Tales of Utah, and of course, Living History column is is a great reading uh, as well. Uh, let me first start with your biography. Um, you're not a native Utah. No. Um, can you tell? I'm from Boston. <laughs> from Boston. Boston and Maine. In fact, my accent changes when I go from Boston through New Hampshire and in, into Maine. I become a Mainer. <laughs> Just be, and, uh, by what you're listening to, I guess you, you you revert back. You know, I always have. My mother always knew who I was playing with, with whom I was playing, because she would say, oh, you're talking to so-and-so, because she always talked in a certain way. Mm. And so, yeah, I've been kind of mimicking people for years <laughs> and years. <laughs> uh, so interest in people, I imagine, is that what got you into history? You know, I think so. Uh, you're probably too young to remember um, Nancy Drew. Uh, Nancy, oh no, I, I I read some Nancy Drew. I read more Hardy Boys, but uh, you know I like the Hardy yeah, Boys mm-hmm. too. In fact, I dress more like the Hardy Boys because I grew up in Maine, Massachusetts, in Maine, and so I had my brothers, my older brother Stanley's hand-me-downs a lot, and so I didn't dress in the exquisite clothes she did. I wore coveralls, jeans a lot, but. Um, I always wanted to know who, what, where, why, when, and actually why not hmm. from the time I was maybe six, seven years old. I always wanted to know what makes people work, what do they do, and who are they. And I was also very shy, so putting the two together, maybe if I thought I was a detective, then I would have more courage. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, that gets me to it. I wanted to ask you about uh, how do you go about digging up these these interesting uh, stories. I guess first to get us into the living history, what's your goal there? What's your brief, as we would would say? Is, is the hidden stories, the, the off-the-track stories? I think so. Um, when I first moved to um, Salt Lake City, I thought, wrongfully, but I thought everyone was sort of like blonde and blue-eyed. I didn't see a lot of diversity when I flew here. And I thought, boy, this is an interesting Western state. People look a lot alike. And then I thought, well, where is everybody else? Because, you know, growing up in Boston, you live among diversity, a diverse group of uh, population. And I started wondering, where were other people? Where is everybody? And, you know, Utah is very vast, so there are places where there are no people. And yet... It has a history. I knew it had a history that was quite broad. And I just started delving into different people, which brought me into the mining industry. 
uh, railroad, transportation, unions, small towns with wonderful stories. And so I think I was looking for different stories, not just about people, but about things. You know, we had a past king of America was here, a past <laughs> king of the West was here. Who knew there was a company that made uh, macaroni? Hmm, I, I didn't. <laughs> well, you'll have to read my book. Yeah, yeah, there. definitely. Yes. And that was kind of interesting. Also, who knew there was coffee? There were coffee brewers here years and years ago, long before coffee started being watered here. You know, it was mm-hmm. really strong coffee, which was fabulous from what I heard. And I just started questioning people, and I'm, I think I'm very lucky. I, I sense stories. Mm-hmm. I'll talk to someone and I feel that there's a story behind the story they're telling me. Hmm. And that's what I go for. So uh, I want to get into uh, where I was going with this was, uh, was your, your sources and how you go about this, because I, I think this, you know, would help people perhaps if they want to explore stories, maybe in their family. Uh, and so as I'm reading through your book, I'm sort of picking these out. So I, I noticed you got some archival recordings. I went to newspaper art archives, interview. You do, personally do interviews. Uh, so all sorts of ways that you dig up stories. You know, the, the, um, Utah is incredible. Sorry. The archive, archives of Utah is, is amazing. The University of Utah, I, I can go up there and find stories. The newspaper archives, the digital newspaper archives here is wonderful. The, um, I do do interviews, and so people will open their their own scrapbooks, their past to me, papers they've saved. I was interviewing a woman, a uh, Japanese farmer, and the next thing I knew, I saw her whole history and what life was like when they first moved here. And the same with the Chinese and uh, African Americans. It was, you, you have to be open if you are really looking to find stories. You need to be open to finding them. Hmm. You have to you try really hard to to uh, or let's put it this way you want to know the story you can't comp- you don't want to refute the story you just want to know the story and that's people who want to change stories have a problem with getting the real story and that's what I want to do I just want to get the real story and so I talk to people I go to the university Weber State has is fabulous I, there's a story in Logan that I'm dying to get, but I know so little about. But, boy, if anyone had information on that, I would be really happy. What, um, what's that, by the way? Well, it's just, this, just a hint of there was a summer camp for budding actresses or from Hollywood. Summer camp in Logan. Hmm. I, I haven't heard about this. Well, I don't know anything about it, but I heard about it. And I'm pursuing that because, it, you know, the stories must be really quite different mm-hmm. and exciting. So that's one story I'm working on now, although I shouldn't tell you because now everybody else wants to do that <laughs> no, story. No, do that Don't yet. ask me what I'm doing now. <laughs> okay, okay. But I, I do use newspapers a lot. Mm-hmm. I use the archives a tremendous amount because there have been stories and interviews done throughout the years. Some of them are are not as complete as I'd like them to be, so I try to find relatives to complete the story. So I do a lot of pursuing 
sleuthing, um, just for information. Uh, I'd like to dive into some of these stories. Um, I want to, just because we were talking about archival recordings and being in radio, that you know, piques my interest. Um, the title of this uh, story, Vaudeville Flop Sid Fox Dazzled Utahns with TV. Um, so Sid Fox, you write, 1906, he left St. Louis, Missouri, headed west to Denver, he ended up in, uh, in Salt Lake, young man, gets off the train. Uh, he first wants to get into, um, you know, uh, vaudeville. That doesn't work because he doesn't have a good voice. Then he gets into sales and eventually into, into media. Fascinating character. He is fascinating. Um, you are speaking about a story that was in my earlier book, Hidden History of Utah. Um, uh, it's also in the in the new one as well, apparently. What page? Uh, uh, let's see, page one sixty-two. Oh, let me see because I think that's um. So it could be a, could be uh, talking about two different people, but uh, but anyway, he he was instrumental in uh, starting the, uh, one of the first radio yeah. stations and he, then one of the first television was, stations. He, sorry, I'm sorry. You're right. He he really was an all-around guy. I mean, he went from, from going into vaudeville. I think he also um, worked on this diamond, this, um, what is it, Miracle Diamonds that was a laxative. It's supposed to be a laxative, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he did it, he promoted it with such panache that I would buy it. You know, it looked like <laughs> diamonds, he said, sparkled like diamonds, and when you dried them out and put them in a box, they poured out like diamonds. He had a way of presenting visually um, products that people would just normally pass by, and they didn't pass by. He also uh, printed business cards for prostitutes, soil doves. <laughs> wow. And that, yeah, that would have been, he could have made a lot of money because there was another gentleman who also uh, printed for prostitutes because they liked to have their, their cards, they were calling cards, printed on smaller size paper, thick paper, thick vellum, mm-hmm. and he did that. He... Um, when he got into radio, I, I, I think he really did it because he said he couldn't make it in show business. He was not a song and dance man after all. And then when he aired the KDYL Playhouse, he realized after when the RCA introduced television in 1939 at the New York World's Festival, um, World's Fair, he said, "Brother, television's the thing," <laughs> and he did. He he got into television. And, you know, I, there are pictures of Jack ben- Benny coming here to town and pictures, too, of, of um, George Burns and Gracie, uh, Gracie Allen. I think that he really advanced television in Utah. He just, he was his own person. Um, he had a parade of people who walked with him, an entourage of people. He was able to do business, and he did business well. I think he also might have spent a lot of money because I know that he died a little poorer, and that he, but he died at 91 years old. I mean, he lived a full, full life, and he impacted radio and television here in Salt Lake City in Utah. In fact, the the band leader for KDYL was Eugene Jelesnik, so we're familiar with. He did. He really, and Eugene. So many people know about him and his ability and his music and his. He, I think they worked in tandem for many, many years, and they helped each other. Mm-hmm. It must have been amazing to have television here 
for children and, and adults to watch television and to listen to the radio. Mm. Radio is always very important because, um, to me, it's always been important because it you dream of what you're hearing. That's what I like yeah. about radio. Yeah, certainly. The, yeah, you, you make you the, your own pictures in your mind. Uh, it's kind of a, a bittersweet ending to his story. Uh, you talked with a gentleman who said that uh, apparently Mr. Fox, and there's a picture of him, very dapper dresser, was a compulsive gambler, lost his money, but a group of community members pooled their money and helped helped him up. Ralph Tannenbaum yeah. told me that story, yeah. um, which is why it's so wonderful to do interviews when you hear about a story and you research it, say it's in the archives at, the uni- at a university, and the Marriott has a lot, so I love going up there. Um, you want to know more, and I just happened to be talking about it with Ralph. I know him. And he just started ta- telling me stories about Sid Fox and how people just adored him. He, w- he was so charismatic, so friendly, so warm, and really focused on what he was doing. But he was a gambler. Mm. And, you know, that's, uh, he lost a lot of money. And so Ralph and his friends got together, and they ended up taking care of him. They paid for his rent. They probably paid for his food. And I don't think that... Sid Fox ever realized he was poor. Hmm. And lived, li- lived in 91, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, I want to jump into a couple of uh, stories, um, kind of selfishly, which have a vernal connection. That's my hometown. Um, so when we come back, uh, Eileen uh, Hallett-Stone, I'll have you, uh, if you're willing to, read page 48 for me. Very interesting story. This It starts in Vernal and ends up in Salt Lake City. Kind of a, one of those hidden uh, histories. Then I want to talk about the, the Bassets. Josie's Cabin is very uh, so very familiar to us in the Uona Basin as a, kind of a tourist destination. And uh, it's a rip-roaring tale. The Bassets were associated in a way with uh, Butch Cassidy. You, you write about Butch Cassidy as well. Uh, more with Eileen Hallett-Stone, her new book, a collection of her uh, columns from the Salt Lake Tribune, is called Historic Tales of Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Dr. Martin Harris, joining Dr. Nathan Call at Budge Clinic Family Medicine. Medical services including newborn and adolescent care to adults and geriatrics. Office hours and appointment information available at 435-716-1150. Welcome to Science by the Slice. To address the frightening public health concerns of increasingly frequent drug-resistant pathogens, USU Uinta Basin biology professor Leanna Etchberger and her students are on the hunt for new antibiotics. The students collect soil samples and antibiotic-producing microbes in the vernal area and upload their findings to a central database of samples from around the world. Their efforts contribute to a global effort to combat disease. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. You're 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, talking Utah history today. Uh, the new book is Historic Tales of Utah. It's out from the History Press. The author is Eileen Hallett-Stone. This is a second collection from her popular Salt Lake Tribune Living History column. And uh, union uh, figures, women on the front lines of suffrage battles, uh, Chinese immigrants, heroic northern, Utah, northern Ute firefighters, and many other stories. And we're hearing some of those stories today on the program. If you want to read them all, of course, you need to read the Salt Lake Tribune and pick up this book, Historic Tales of uh, Utah. Uh, so, uh, and the number, by the way, if you'd like to join us is 1-800-826-1495, toll-free, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so, Eileen Hallett-Stone, I wonder if you'd read for us page 48 uh, from, from the book. This is a fascinating uh, story, and, you know, one of those stories among many that I'd, I had no idea were out there. Well, it's interesting you say that, and I would love to say thank you for telling me about Sid Fox. One of my objectives in Historic Tales was to put in as many stories as I could, which is why it's a little bit heavier. There's more print on a page. And because I write these articles, I sometimes get confused as to, did I put it in, did I not put it in? (laughs) But Sid Fox was extraordinary. The Steris family, too, and Vernal were really unusual. And I learned about them through uh, a granddaughter, um, Gail Bernstein-Chiachi, and she told me this story and gave me the interviews that were done. So sometimes you asked me before, how do people learn, how do, how do they go about uh, getting these stories? And one of the, the first thing you want to do is just ask. Ask people. And then think, is this, going to, is this could be good? You'll start to feel what stories are really good, and you just, if you have a nose for news you will. Mm. And then you just go in that direction. So she told me about her family in Vernal, and at the time I didn't know anything about Vernal. Since then, I do. Vernal's an exciting town, and a town that's always going through change, which is quite interesting. So it starts at at 2 o'clock in the morning on October 10, 1911. A hurricane struck the city of Vernal. Strong winds sheared the tops of buggy sheds, carried off horse blankets, and shattered windows. According to the October 13 Vernal Express, the bluster played pranks on the premise, premises of Isaac Steris in the east part of town, where everything movable was shifted about promiscuously. I love that word. They actually mm-hmm. used that. In the paper, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. For all the wind's ferocity, no one was harmed. The broken was mended, a blanket was found wrapped around telephone pole wires, and the family had reason to celebrate. Several weeks earlier, at the 4th Judicial District Court, Jewish immigrant Isaac Steris became an American citizen. Narrowly missing conscription in the Russian army, Isaac left the Ukraine for Canada and immigrated to Utah in 1905. His wife Rose and their children, three of them, remained in Odessa until he saved enough money to send for them. Mother always talked about surviving the Cossack pogroms, her American-born daughter, Claire Steris Bernstein, said in a 1972 American West Center interview. One time the Cossacks made a deadly sweep of the Jewish section, she said. A Gentile man, and here um, Gentile there meant non-Jewish. Yeah, it's, it's a, that weird thing that uh, Gentile means something different in Utah, right? Uh, yeah. I know, it, it, it does. And I remember when I first came to Utah, I was surprised to be considered a Gentile. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I'm not, well... In some eyes, I'm not. Right. 
Um, so one time the Cossacks made a deadly sweep of the Jewish section. A Gentile man suddenly grabbed my mother and the children. He hid them in his lumber yard and saved them from that pogrom. A pogrom is a riot. Out of, out of the blue, uh, soldiers would come in and just fire, set fire to the houses or beat children and adults. Um, they could even shoot them. Pogroms are, are definitely not safe. Rose struggled for months to feed and keep her children safe. When she was finally able to book passage, the young family sailed from Germany to New York. They went by train to Ogden. Reunited with Isaac, they headed up to their new home in Vernal. It was a long journey for Mother, Claire said. She always kept an Orthodox home and had never eaten non-kosher food. In Utah, she ate no meat at all until my father learned how to ritually kill a chicken following Jewish dietary law. Living in a small log cabin, Rose was puzzled by a cook stove. She had never seen nor worked one before, Claire said. Fortunately, a kind neighbor taught her how to open and close a damper to regulate the temperature. From then on, Mother would get up in the middle of the night, set the dough, and bake bread two or three times a day. With financial backing from Salt Lake City Jewish merchants, Isaac traveled to the Uinta and Ore Reservation to buy furs and hides. He placed ads in the Vernal Express. He barely eked out a living, Claire said. To help support our growing family, Mother raised vegetables and baked this gorgeous bread, the best we ever ate. Claire was born in Vernal in 1907. An early reader, she attended the Congregationalist School. It was a wonderful, warm community, she said. I went to Sunday school for several years, but when I was told Jews killed Christ, I came home crying, and my father wouldn't let me go anymore. I think that's all I'll read, because okay. no, I only have 650 words yeah. to an, a column, and if I tell you the end of the story, you won't read the end of the story. So I think you best read the end of it yourself. Oh, okay. That's, it's, it's, a, it's quite the ending as well. Uh, I love in, in this, uh, the, the ad in the Vernal Express from Mr. Steers, he directs people to iSteers phone 41A. Yes, I had no idea, and I could not find more information about that, but I did see an ad, and I believe that's how they did it, and that was the number. But I don't know any more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even know they had phones then. When yeah. did phones come about? I, I don't know. That that seems early to me as well. But uh, um, it it was interesting to me to think about this. That you know th- these people are immigrating from Ukraine, end up in Vernal, Utah. You know the, the American West. What a what a different life that must have been. Well, you wonder why people came to the West. You know, what would drive people to the West to begin with, especially the Intermountain West? And the reasons are really many. Some fled persecution. Some came to find themselves in the West. Some came to create new lives in the West, to reinvent themselves in the West, because the West offered so much opportunity. There was, you know, there were the gold mines, and and there was... The train wasn't here then, but even when the train came, that brought an explosion in population. More people came out here. It was it was a place that offered everybody opportunity, and I think that's why they came here. Yeah, I wanted to uh, maybe to jump to talking about why it's important to to get these stories that you do, you know, the so-called hidden hidden stories. And I understand that. Uh, the book you co-authored, Leslie Kellen, Missing Stories, an Oral History of Ethnic and Minority Groups in Utah, is being used in 
in some schools, I don't know, all, all schools in Utah, to go, fill out the curriculum, I guess, is that the purpose? Yeah, I, I'm not, it, it should be widespread. Um, if I may go back in time, I was um, substitute teaching at a school here in Salt Lake City, and I, it was um, seventh grade, and I was looking in the history book, and I saw maybe three paragraphs, four paragraphs, maybe two, on um, people of different cultures. And I thought, but there's more here. Why, why don't we know about the others when the others are actually a part of us? They're part of Utah. The downtown scene is a part of Utah. It's, we are so lucky to be in Utah where we can you know, actually contribute to this state. So who did the contribution? Who, who made these contributions? The, when the mining started, there were not enough people here to, to work in the mines. They, you know, people went to Greece. They went to Italy. People came from all over. If they were in the United States, they came from the middle of the United States over here to, to the Intermountain West to work in the mines. The, the, our whole, our most of our, our foundation was built on the backs of immigrants. There's an interesting story before I go to the Bassets. I want to get to there. But um, the, the last piece in the book, very interesting, this talks about how a community tried to come together, I think succeeded for the most part in this case. That's, you talk about helper and baseball. Yes. Now, that was another story that was just Oh, it was so exciting to do. I don't mean to sound so excited, but it was really exciting to do that story. I often go through Helper and into the to the museum, which is another wonderful place to get stories, is just start looking around. And I saw pictures there and I about baseball and I kept thinking, Wow, why does baseball why is baseball so important to these mining towns? It's 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 such a incredible sport and it does it brings people together and not only that mining owners mine company owners would actually enlist people who were good baseball players <laughs> give them jobs that wouldn't hurt them and let them go on their team and there this fellow Walter Borla he actually was a sports announcer and a, uh, I think he was a columnist so he was on the radio, and when he, he talked so much about, about baseball, and I got his name through the, uh, the museum. So it's all connecting. Stories are connected. You go one place, you ask a question, and people are very kind. I hope they're kind. They will talk with you and then give you another number, and you follow up, and you just keep following up, and you find yourself with a story and a photograph. There's a fabulous photograph of the 1943 junior baseball champs on page 191. I loved the story. I loved how it was actually rebroadcast in a way on radio. Right, they'd send telegraph, right, Tele of what was happening, and then the, yes. the guy would recreate it on the radio. Yes, so they would play the game, and then they would go out, and they would actually hear the game. <laughs> because there was a delay, because of, because of the, it, was, it was relayed several times. Uh, so 16 different nationality groups there in Helper, Italians, Finns, Austrians, Chinese, Greeks, Japanese, and uh, Philip Notoriani, uh, the historian, uh, many people will be familiar with him, um, he said baseball was a way of gaining community and cultural acceptance. It was. 
you know, when people work together, sometimes um, the mining community might was difficult in the early days. The newer immigrants possibly got the most difficult jobs, the dirtier jobs. Um, there were a lot of problems. That's why unions came into being here. But it was all new. It was sort of a ritual, a rite of passage in a way. And there were so many different ethnic groups. How do you get people together? We, we tend as, as a community to separate ourselves. You know, if you go to a church or, or a synagogue or um, a mosque or wherever you go, you tend to be with your own people. And this brought out something else. This is saying, let's all be together. We are one community of different people. Like in Bingham, by the way. Yeah, in Bingham, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so here in Helper, when people were working together and, and actually having fun and being competitive and playing hard and being exhausted, there was really little time to dislike each other. Mm-hmm. There was more time to talk about something common like baseball and how to make it, how to, you know, be better at it and to be a team. It was team play. Mm. I want to, uh, I've been referencing this, I want to get into this, uh, the Bassett family. Uh, those in eastern Utah be very familiar with the with the, with the story of the Bassets, although not completely. I learned I learned quite a bit reading a series of articles you did on on the Bassett family. This is Browns Park area, uh, kind of remote along the Green River, where where uh, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming come together. So fascinating story. Herb Bassett, on advice from his brother, uh, trying to solve his asthma. It goes out to this rugged, remote uh, place, but he's uh, he's not the stereotypical guy. He's an educated musical man. He he's reads Emerson and Shakespeare, organizes a public school, but surrounding him there are cattle rustlers, and it's kind of a rough place. Yes, and there was his wife, too. You know, she was such a southern belle that you would think that she would um, be alongside him, which she was, but she was um, tough as nails. I I like... When I started learning about the Bassett family, it was just by happenstance. I was in Vernal for another reason, and I picked up, I don't know, one of the brochures they had, and I i heard that name and, and thought, well, who are these? Who's this family? And then I was actually in Wyoming, I think. It was there, and I picked up another brochure, and they talked about the Bassetts, the legendary Bassetts, and I thought, I have to find out more about them. That's why um, I did more than my 650 words. Yeah, you did several several columns. By the way, the, the, you, you can't make this stuff up. Um, Davy Crockett's nephew was involved, right? <laughs> I know. And, and, and if, had I more time, you know, to write more, I would delve into that. I would go into that. The relationship between all these people are fascinating. They're just fascinating to, to explore who they are. And what's interesting to me is that the, the uh, daughters, I mean, for one thing, the mother, Elizabeth, she was tough. She was gorgeous. And she could, like it said here, she at five feet, six inches tall, the blonde Southern Belle could ride a horse, handle a shotgun, set bones, put in stitches, and if necessary, rustle for their livelihood. I think she enjoyed it's doing that. It's very interesting to me that in a different setting, had her mm-hmm. life gone a different path, she she probably wouldn't have explored those talents, those interests. You know, she would have been lived a different kind of a life. But it probably she would say she felt lucky to be in this rugged area and 
because it seemed freeing to me that, that she was doing all these things. She was lucky. She might have been on a ranch. She might have been, but it would be a different ranch. It would be more cultured. Her husband, Herb, was really, he was educated. He was probably not cut out as well for the West, but he contributed to the West. I mean, he sets up a post office. He sets up a school. So he offers some gentility, some education to to this area. And he also, what I liked about him, is that he accepted people as they as they were, as they are. Mm. Tell, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Um, no, no, you go ahead. Uh, I wanted to hear more about the two daughters. So we, we you know, in, in eastern Utah, we, we know of Josie's cabin. And she and I think we know vaguely she went through a bunch of husbands. Um, there, there, there's a story in your article. <laughs> One of her husbands mistreated a horse, and she gave him 15 minutes to get out of town. She did. You know, I looked at the picture of her, and I found her story because the, at the uh, Vernal Historical Center, and I'm not sure I'm saying it exactly right, but you can find it at the public library. It's a beautiful building there. It's new. It's gorgeous, and they're very kind to people. And you could find her stories more there in full. But you see a picture of her, which is why photographs are also important when you try to find stories. You'd love to find photographs about it. She looks so meek. Doesn't she? White hair, round, mm-hmm. you know, quiet, unassuming. This woman went through husbands like I don't know anybody else who has. <laughs> and she was tough, and yet she was also more sophisticated. She mm-hmm. was educated. She helped others. She was, a, to me, kind of a, like a true Western. She was a woman with grit of grit, and yet she was a woman who knew how to put on a tea. And in the end, what mattered to her was living. Mm-hmm living in the house, wearing the clothes. I mean, when she started wearing trousers, people didn't wear trousers then. And here she is changing fashion because who can work in a dress all the time? And she, too, was open to people. Her sister, though, she's fascinating. Yeah, I was going to have you talk about uh, Anne. I hadn't known about Anne. Uh, Tell me about her. Well, Anne, I believe, and I'd love to know more about her, Anne was wild and possibly unable to control herself. I, I don't know whether she was even possibly bipolar, and I don't want to, well, I shouldn't say that, but there is something about Anne that she's changeable. She's angry, and then she's happy. She goes off on these daring adventures, but with all these emotions that she has that she can't always control, she has this inside stability of righting wrong, which is you don't steal our cattle. Mm. You, know, you don't take over. The cattle barons have no business taking over our land. This is what she believes. And so she sets out to change that, to affect that. I don't know about her relationship with um, Butch Cassidy. Those are, so many are rumors. I received a lot of uh, email talking about that. But she was, I think her family would say that she struggled with her emotions. Mm-hmm. And what, what do you call that today? Right, yeah. So uh, um, I wonder, it's interesting to me, you, you wrote about Butch Cassidy, um, and you got some response, and you put a couple of these responses in the book here. Um, I did. Um, this goes. This goes to uh, I don't know the, the the rumors, the stories that uh, Butch Cassidy did not die in Bolivia, that he you know lived to a ripe old age. 
I even have pictures. I got more after the book came out or when I sent it in for printing. There were more stories that have come to me, and I really, I'm collecting them all. I, they say he did not die, and they'd say where he died. But where he died was in so many different places, I don't know how he could be in all of them. Mm-hmm. But the stories are wonderful. Um, I also have a picture of a badge that um, someone wrote and said this was given to um, Butch Cassidy from a sheriff. And I think, how did that happen? So I'm waiting to hear about why did that happen. Um, One of the most wonderful things about writing these stories, and there are a lot of stories, is that it's not the whole story. You know, each one is its own jewel or a nugget or a piece. It's like mining for gold it's each one tells you only so much but enough of the only so much that it can spirit you on to find out more and that's what the butch cassidy has done Mm -hmm. uh i do receive a lot of mail about him and it means he's still alive and people think about well he's not really alive but he's alive in the minds of many and people will think about it talk about it tell me stories and it's a wonderful way to to connect us even further, you know, together, to get us all together. And it usually comes down through family, right? Well, you hear, well, my grandmother, you know, saw, knew Butch a little bit and, and met him, you know, years later. Or it was my uncle or, you know, whatever it was. It's, it comes down through the family. These stories, to those, it, to those families, it's fact, you know. It does come down through stories, uh, through families. And then when it comes through families, you have to figure, is this a... You know, in Yiddish, they have a booby meiser, like it's not true, it's a fairy tale, <laughs> uh-huh. or is it true? Right. And that one thing about doing oral history interviewing is you have to be open to what's being said, and then maybe later you can talk about more what you don't understand. But these stories are family stories, and I think they're really a part of our culture, a part of our history. So I love them. Um, <laughs> And they usually come from great-grandparents or grandparents, or my sister knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And when I get these emails, the intention of the emails, the the feeling behind the words is so uh, passionate that it's a joy to read, and so I had to include them. Uh, Finally, before we go to break, uh, just on this section... uh... I I quite enjoyed your column called How Fences Tamed the American West. Uh, This is page 22. And and you you connect this up. You you talk to a guy from the Cattlemen's Association and how fences, uh, you know, tamed the West. But you connect this up with a fence you were putting up in your backyard. And you live in Sugar House, I think. I did. Our fence fell apart. My neighbor didn't have a fence, and he wanted a fence. His broke many years ago. He was an older gentleman. And so um, I was outside when there were, there were no fences. They were taken down. And it was, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. The backyard was so huge. Of course, I was looking into other people's backyards. But it was wonderful. It was just wonderful to, to see uh, the space. The space alone was terrific. But I also felt ambivalent because, um, you know, fences also protect us. They say what's our... What is, what, what belongs to us. So like I wrote, that fences defend and protect, they confine and they liberate. And they, this um, editor, John Dreiser wrote, Gregory Dreiser wrote, they make space into place. 
He wrote that in Between Fences is his book. Mm -hmm. And some say they helped tame the American West, and I'm pretty sure they did because it was sort of what the Bassett's face to, if you come over to our property and take our cattle, you're stealing from us, so we'll steal from you. Mm-hmm. And fences may have helped that from happening. Yeah, I like the phrase, they make space into place. Uh, they do, they make space into place. And I have to say, when I finally did get my fence put in, I feel like I'm a walking ad <laughs> by the, um, well, by the fence company, mm-hmm. um, it was western fence by the way they were incredible they put up a fence and it's beautiful and it remains beautiful and it shows off the landscaping and i don't feel confined but i also kind of miss that wonderful walking out the backyard walking to the backyard down the steps and no longer seeing you know yard after yard after yard of uh, lovely land And that's uh, probably, you know, the feeling that is kind of a mixed feeling, right? That the people, as the West was being fenced, probably had those similar feelings. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about the Northern Ute firefighters. Fascinating history, uh, some of which I, I hadn't known before, and, and, and some more stories. Historic Tales of Utah is the book. It's a new collection from Eileen Hallett Stone's uh, popular Living History column in the Salt Lake Tribune. More follows the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement online at utahhumanities.org. I'm Robin Young. You know Judy Collins' voice. Now she's raising it for suicide prevention. She once survived suicide, but her son didn't. You don't get over it. I shouldn't put it that way. You get through it, however next time, here and now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Eileen Hallett-Stone. She has a uh, new collection uh, uh, collected from her Living History column, the Salt Lake Tribune. This one is called Historic Tales of Utah. It's out from the History Press. And you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Eileen Hallett-Stone, uh, 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 I keep yes. calling these fascinating, You know the ones I've picked, but they're all fascinating. But this one um, it talks about the Northern Ute firefighters. Uh, tell me a bit about uh, about them. How how did you uh, come to know this history? That was another chance encounter. I was giving a talk at the library in Vernal, and one of the fellows attending the talk talked to me about the uh, Northern Ute Utah, uh, North sorry, the Northern Ute Indian firefighters, and I asked him if it were possible that someone would talk with me. I had, you know, no idea. One of the things about doing getting stories or doing oral history interviews is you, you, you don't want to be you don't want to interfere with people's lives. You know, you want to be polite, but you also have to get the story. So it's a balance of being polite and 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 a little not pushy, but determined. And so he gave me the name of a gentleman, Kirby Arif, who was a Bureau of Indian Affairs fire management officer for the Uinta Ore Indian Reservation. And I called him, 
and I know I talk a lot and, and I use my hands if, if I'm in person and I thought, oh, I, I hope I don't overstep. And he was amazing. He was so kind to me. It was like, I believe he knew my intent was to find the story and to write about it. And that's all I really want to do. Mm-hmm. And so he started talking with me about how they went to different fires. And then he said he had some photographs. And so I contacted the women at the um, library in Vernal, and I asked them, and I'm not using the correct terminology, I'm really sorry, but I asked them if they would talk with him, and they did. And so photographs were then you know, transferred and then sent back to the reservation, which is so exciting. It, like, it brings our history even closer. We start to understand about different people, and especially the people who were here long before we were here. Mm. So it's very important to, to have something about them. I had no idea that they fought firefighters, that they fought fires. I had no idea that many of them, when they went to get the job, would um, put on a pair of shoes, interview, get the job, come out, and take those boots off and mm. give them to the next person. Yeah, yeah. I had amazing. no idea that they did not have all the equipment that was necessary at the time, and yet they were so damn brave. I mean, they went out and they they flew in airplanes. They took on the fire. They 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 instinctively knew what to do and when to leave it. They, according to what people have said, they have they never missed a call, and they gained national recognition. You uh, you talked to a, um, one woman, Joan Yazzie. She says, my husband Robert was 16 years old when he started out fighting fires. He did it for the money, then realized he loved the work, gained satisfaction from being uh, good at it. Yes. Getting other people to talk with me was another wonderful challenge because some of them are, are not even in Utah. She was, in, she was wonderful. Some of the men felt um, shy about talking with me. Probably, you know, you're talking about your exploits. And uh, that's difficult. Like, this is what I did. It's hard to talk about oneself. I struggle myself to do that. But she spoke with me, and it was all out of the blue. I just got on the phone and started calling people. And one name led to another to another, and uh, even to this Walter Six Killers family who who don't live here now. They were, I think one of the daughters lives in New Mexico. They were open to talking with me. And telling the story, and this this is Utah. This is what's happened here, and I I just think it's important we all know about it, know about the determination, know about the drive, and that she said that he did it for the money. Who doesn't do it for the money? Who doesn't try to get a job to get money to raise their family, mm-hmm. to build a home, to buy groceries, to get clothing for their children? We all do it for the money. And at the same time, some of us are lucky to fall in love with what we do. And, yeah. I want to, uh, I want to uh, take you to page 186. You talked to uh, Judge Raymond Uno. Um, fascinating story. And it, I think we were aware of the Japanese internment camps. We are aware that we had a camp in Utah, Topaz. I learned some things here that, uh, you know, just make it even more outrageous. Uh, Raymond Uno, I think we've heard of his name. He's a retired uh, judge. His father fought and uh, volunteered for World War I. Yes. Um, and, 
and became a became a citizen because of that. They the uh, eventually uh, granted citizenship to to the, uh, the the Japanese Americans who who fought in World War One. His family was interned anyway. Yes, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, it's such a tragedy um, to force people who are American citizens or working in America trying to make a life, trying to fulfill their dreams, having no desire to hurt anybody or do anything that's devastating, just live. And um, even when he was interned, his name was Clarence, even when he was interned, he served as a sergeant-at-arms at the Commodore Perry American Legion Post in Los Angeles, and then he brought his ability to the internment camp. He really, um, they went through hell. I mean, a whole family uprooted, and he still maintained his patriotism. I mean, how many people would do that? I, he was such an honorable man, Clarence was. He, I've, I would have loved to have met him. I would have loved to have met him. And the idea of being here, they were in Heart Mountain, and the idea of being in Heart Mountain in Wyoming is, I don't know if you've been out there. I haven't. It's a fascinating place to go. The Japanese farmers did so much there. They cultivated the, the land. They, they taught us how to be better farmers. At the same time, guns... The sentry, the guns were pointing in at them, not out. Hmm. So they were imprisoned, and there's no way that anyone can say they weren't in prison. I've hmm. talked to people, and they say, well, it was done for their own good, but that's a bunch of hooey because hmm. uh, you don't imprison people for their own good. What, is, uh, what does Judge Uno say about that? How does he feel? I know, I know he, he went to the Army. Uh, he later, went later on. Later into the army, he mm-hmm. did a lot. I'm amazed he became a judge. He was over the house. We were visiting one day, and he brought me the picture that's in the book. And he, he somehow, he managed to corral his anger at being in a camp, his heartbreak of seeing his father die, being with his father when he died, the anguish he had with his mother having to work jobs just to help the family, his own adventure of living on his own or from one relative to another. Um, It's amazing that he ended up focusing to to become a judge. And before that, he was a Gandhi dancer. He worked for the Union Pacific Railroad. And then he served as a um, translator, interpreter, interrogator in Japan when he was 20. 20 years old. He experienced life. He didn't let it break him down. What he offers people is the reason to open your eyes to who we are and what we're doing. And I I am so, um, I felt honored when he talked with me. I don't like to use that word because I'm really just a writer, but I felt like he taught me something. You have to be able to look at people, to listen to their stories, and to learn from them. Don't listen and then walk away and do something that um, might even you know, be discriminating. You don't just have to be tolerant. You can learn why you're being tolerant, and then you can start to embrace the differences of others. And he, he did that. But these are strong characters, all of them. 
you know, even the Bassett family, to survive in that environment, to build a life in that environment. The Chinese who came over here as, you know, paper sons and daughters, so they had to memorize uh, their whole past in order to come over as somebody else's daughter. You know, would the strength be there for people today? Is it there for people today? Um, they did it on their own for the most part. We'll, uh, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, and there's much else, of course, to read in Historic Tales of Utah. It's out from uh, the History Press. Eileen Hallett-Stone is the author. She uh, also, of course, writes the uh, popular column Living History in the uh, Salt Lake Tribune. Eileen Hallett-Stone, uh, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I uh, hope you join me on Monday. We'll have the next in our uh, series of programs featuring Pulitzer Prize winners. And uh, up next is Laurel Thatcher Ulrich. Um, she uh, coined a phrase. It was a meme before a meme was even a thing. It's called Well-Behaved Women Seldom Make History. That turned into a book. She's also a Pulitzer Prize winner uh, for the book Midwives' Tale. She's a Harvard professor. Uh, she'll join us on Monday. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. It's part video game, part theater, part installation. Next time on Q, we'll take you inside Situation Rooms, an immersive work that lets audiences see through the eyes of people in the international arms trade. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.